Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and for the season one finale of A Good Night for a Murder podcast, and a nod to the wrap-up of Mardi Gras this week, we're headed to New Orleans. This is the story of Madame Delphine LaLaurie. But first, a Victorian society tip. So you did hear correctly in the introduction that this episode is about to be the last episode of a Good Night for a Murder podcast for this season. Full episodes will take a break in March and April and will return in May with season two. There will still actually be content released every other week through March and April, so definitely stay subscribed and keep following. But seeing as we're about to part ways just as spring break is about to kick off, I wanted to share some Victorian-inspired spring break destinations with you. If you want to step back in time, walk in the footsteps, and see the sights as our Victorian brothers and sisters did, consider visiting some of these locations. Now, it may seem a little funny, but I'm going to start with the U.S. because I checked the listener stats and it's where most of you are from. Most colonists of the U.S. were English, so even though they had physically picked up and moved elsewhere, they still did many things the Victorian English way. And that also applies to a number of hotels and resorts that are still standing today. Topping the list are a number of destinations in Colorado. During the Victorian era, Colorado was kind of the Switzerland of the U.S. Resorts extolled the health benefits of the clean, dry mountain air, and soon city dwellers were arriving by the trainfall. Victorian age constructions include the Stanley in Estes Park, the Cliff House in Manitoba Springs, the Hotel Colorado in Glenwood Springs, and also the Dutton Hot Springs. Mohonk Mountain House, opening in 1890, just 90 miles outside of New York City, has taken pains to preserve its original Victorian-era charm throughout. White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, is another mountain escape that rose in popularity due to the healing benefits of its numerous springs and clean mountain air. The Greenbrier Resort in White Sulphur Springs has been established as the high society resort in the South since the 1800s. Even if you can't afford to stay there, you are still welcome to visit and walk the grounds. A few more U.S. destinations, starting with the East Coast and heading west, include Ocean House of Watch Hill, Rhode Island, opened in 1868, the Grand Hotel in Mackinac Island, Michigan, built in 1887, Old Faithful Inn in Yellowstone National Park, Wyoming, built in 1903, Hotel del Coronado, Coronado, California, built in 1888, and the Palace Hotel in San Francisco, California, opened in 1875. Now, if you're in the UK, you're likely already immersed in Victorian age history wherever you are. But I have a few destinations that are recognized as being kind of the epitome of the Victorian era that you can visit. First is Osborne House in the Isle of Wight. Commissioned by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert in 1845, it is now open to the public to explore the house and gardens. There is also the Workhouse and Infirmary in Nottinghamshire, built in 1824. Where the Osborne House will give you a glimpse of how the royals lived, the workhouse and infirmary in Nottinghamshire will illustrate how others lived. The Charles Dickens Museum, located at 48 Doty Street, was the Dickens family home, and it's laid out over five floors, depicting life as it was when the Dickens family was in residence. If you're into spooky Victorian vibes, definitely visit Highgate Cemetery in London, established in 1839. Some other destinations include the Railway Museum in York, showcasing the era's boom and advancements in railway travel. Balmoral Castle in Scotland, though first built as a hunting lodge by the Scottish royal family, it was purchased for Queen Victoria by Prince Albert in 1852. 
The Stoppart Bobbin Mill Farm at Cumbria, built in 1835, is the only operating mill of its kind still standing. And finally, the Salford Museum and Art Gallery has a recreation of an actual Victorian-era street where visitors are permitted to wander by gaslight and peer into shop windows and the like. I hope those destinations inspired you. I'll post the entire list and links on the episode blog on my website. And if you do visit any of them, I hope you tag me so I can see your photos. few quick announcements before we get into tonight's story. Welcome to newest Patreon member, Beth. Thank you for joining. I'm so glad you're here. Beth joined at the Housekeeper and Butler tier, meaning they have access to all the bonus content I always reference at the end of each episode. If you are interested in learning more about the Goodnight for a Murder Patreon, you can visit my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. Also, we already covered that this episode will be the wrap-up for Season 1 for a Good Night for Our Murder podcast, but I do have some special content planned for while I'm away, so definitely watch out for that. We'll pick back up in May with new episodes in Season 2. And finally, you might have noticed this episode is hitting your feet a little late. I do apologize. I've been sick. My son has been sick. We have been going through it in our house. As I've mentioned before, I'm literally a one-woman show when it comes to this podcast, so sometimes we just have to roll with it. We're on the road to recovery now, and I do hope you and everyone in your homes have been healthy as well. Thanks for sitting through the announcements, everyone. Now let's get on with the story. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories, including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Tonight's story does include mentions of slavery, torture, and suicide. Please take care while listening. Marie Delphine McCarty was born on March 19, 1787, to a wealthy family in New Orleans. The family had a long military history and established themselves in what would one day become Louisiana around about 1770. Delphine had one older brother, and her family enjoyed a very comfortable, privileged life on their 1,300-plus acre plantation. Delphine's mother was known for throwing these wild parties at the plantation where something crazy was always bound to happen. It was a tradition at her parties for all guests, men and women alike, to go down to the canal for a midnight swim, where her mother may or may not orchestrate a secret operation to steal the clothes of all the male party guests. Wild times, right? So when Delphine is 13 years old, she meets Ramon Lopez Yangelo de la Calenderia, a 35-year-old widow, officer of the Spanish crown, and second-in-command to the governor of Louisiana. And the exact reason for this seems to be lost to history, but turns out he's going to marry Delphine, and he has to do it fast. Now, he needs permission from the Spanish crown to do so, but they can't wait for that. And he and 13-year-old Delphine are married in a private ceremony on June 11, 1800. Now, Ramon had apparently been testing the patience of the Spanish crown for some time now. He kind of blamed him for the death of his first wife because the crown had forced the two to travel during a bad time of year, and it was during one of those voyages that his wife was taken ill and died. So between his hasty wedding to Delphine, plus defying some importation laws set by the crown, They'd had enough of him, and they handed him kind of a demotion. They started sending him all over the globe on, like, busy work, essentially. Ramon launches a letter-writing campaign with profuse apologies, and Delphine apparently appealed to the queen at some point on her husband's behalf. And eventually, they're like, oh, okay, you can have your old job back. 
and in 1805, they appoint him Spanish consul to New Orleans under the American administration. But on his way back, the ship hit a sandbar off the coast of Havana, and he dies. A very pregnant Delphine had been waiting in Havana to welcome him, where they would then travel back to New Orleans together, but he never makes it. Literally days later, Delphine gives birth to a baby girl, and she stays in Havana only long enough to bury her husband and baptize her baby girl, and then she heads back to New Orleans, a new mother and a widow. So Delphine is back in New Orleans, she's all 17 years old, and she'll have to get married again, right? She makes the acquaintance of 42-year-old Jean-Paul Blanc, a wealthy merchant, lawyer, banker, state legislator, political intriguer, and slave trader. In 1807, Delphine's mother died and left her inheritance of about $33,000, which is about $675,000 in today money. She also left her a plantation on the bank of the Mississippi River, inclusive of 52 slaves, livestock, and farm equipment to run the plantation. A few weeks after that, on her 20th birthday, Delphine marries Blanc. Delphine's father gifted them another plantation, a townhome in the city, and an additional 26 slaves as a wedding present. Marrying Delphine is proving to be a very wise investment for Mr. Blanc. Over the next eight years, she and Blanc would have four children together, two boys and two girls, I believe. But in 1815, Blanc dies at the age of 50. And as can often be the case, while the family appeared to be living comfortably in their lavish lifestyle, things are not always as they seem. Delphine's husband had actually accumulated significant debts, and Delphine, widowed for the second time, now at the age of 28, was forced to renounce she and her husband's community property to the courts and forfeit all of their mutual assets as the only way to protect her own personal property and assets. She spent the next 10 years auctioning off her late husband's property in an effort just to keep herself afloat. Make no mistake, the debt her second husband left behind could have sunk her, but it was her own savvy and shrewdness that kept her and her children going. Then, in 1824, her father passed away, and his inheritance bolstered she and her family enough to provide them that financial cushion of stability. In 1825, a man named Dr. Louis Lalaurie arrives in New Orleans, and his goal is to set up a physician's practice specializing in, quote, destroying hunches and straightening crooked backs. One of Delphine's daughters does happen to suffer from back problems, so Delphine books an appointment for her with the young doctor. One thing leads to another, and Delphine becomes pregnant out of wedlock. Now, Dr. LaLaurie is off 25 years old and likely viewed Delphine at the age of 38, widowed twice with five children, as kind of an attractive, older, rich lady. I doubt either of them had entered into this relationship with marriage on their minds, but here they are. Five months after their son was born, they headed to the notary to negotiate a marriage contract and then to the church. The church apparently fudged the date on their own marriage certificate just a little bit, so their son would appear to have been born in wedlock. Anyway, right out of the gate, the marriage was not a happy one. It was noticed that the couple would often split then reconcile, just a very tumultuous relationship. The first few years of their marriage were spent at Delphine's plantation, but Delphine had her eye on a stately new construction being put up in the city on the corner of Royal and what was then known as Hospital Street. In 1831, she purchased a lot with the partial construction, plus the adjoining lot, and saw the construction of the home and the attached service wing containing the kitchen and slave quarters finished. This is obviously what will become the infamous 1140 Royal Street Mansion. Now, about this time is when rumors and whisperings of how Delphine managed her household and treated her slaves started to eke out into the community. It was noted that her slaves often appeared, quote, 
particularly haggard and wretched. But by the same token, it was often noted how especially kind Delphine seemed to treat her slaves. By and by, though, it was kind of accepted that any kindness she appeared to exhibit was just kind of a front, and all in all, Delphine's true reputation was that she was particularly brutal in the treatment of her slaves. Between 1830 and 1834, funeral records document the deaths of 12 slaves at the Royal Street Mansion. I don't know how this stacks up to other similar households at the time. The source material I have does note infectious diseases could account from some of these deaths as well. However, at one point, widespread rumors and whisperings were enough that a local lawyer was sent to investigate the claims of Delphine's mistreatment of her slaves. He found no evidence of wrongdoing. All he did was give her a little reminder about how to do better. In another incident, though, a young enslaved girl was brushing Delphine's hair for her when she caught a knot in her hair. This caused Delphine to fly into a rage where she grabbed a whip and started chasing the child throughout the house. The poor girl was so frightened, she either ran to the roof or to a window on the top floor where she jumped and she died. She was reportedly buried on the mansion property. This incident did result in an investigation where Delphine was required to give up nine of her slaves which she immediately purchased back through intermediaries. On April 10, 1834, a fire breaks out at the Lalaurie Royal Street Mansion. Both Delphine and her husband happened to be at the residence that day. There was no fire department to call back then, really. It was just an all-hands-on-deck, everyone who was able, we need to save the city and stop the fire from spreading. So crowds are gathering outside, volunteers are rushing in and helping the Lalauries carry out their valuables and belongings, and they can tell the fire has originated somewhere in the service wing, and there are slaves in there still. Also, everyone knows, it's apparently just common knowledge, that Delphine keeps some of her slaves locked on the third floor of the mansion. And the crowd is becoming increasingly anxious about this. A man named Judge Jacques Francois Connage is one of the earliest responders to the scene. He's a judge, he's a prominent man in the community, and he approaches Dr. LaLaurie and says, let us help you get your slaves out. But Dr. LaLaurie knows if he lets people freely enter that part of the home, they're going to see what's been going on behind closed doors at 1140 Royal Street, and he and his wife are going to have a whole other set of problems. So he tells the judge basically to mind his business. Apparently, he'd rather let his house burn. Judge Kunaj doesn't listen, though, and he instructs the bystanders to break down the doors to the service wing. And when he does, people are shocked by what emerges. Now, this is the point in the story where fact and lore start to blend together. But even by the tamest accounts, it was evident that Delphine had been keeping her slaves in deplorable, insufferable conditions. We'll circle back to the rumors and lore later, but based on court documents and early eyewitness accounts, we know that several slaves of all ages, from elderly women down to children, exited the property, some literally in chains, heavily scarred and wounded from extensive beatings, all painfully emaciated. The slaves were removed to the mayor's office where they were given medical aid. It would turn out that the 70-year-old cook had been chained to the stove by her ankle and was so afraid of being taken to the third floor, she decided she was going to set the whole place on fire, either as a means of escape or as a way to end it all. When people outside the LaLaurie mansion saw the horrific state of Delphine's slaves, they became enraged, and the mob turned on Delphine and Dr. LaLaurie. They started vandalizing the still-burning property, literally smashing and tearing it apart. In the midst of all this, Delphine's coach driver, also a slave, 
brought her coach around for her, and she stepped in and was whisked away out of reach of the angry mob. Her driver delivered her to the waterfront on Lake Pontchartrain, where she boarded a schooner which sailed across the lake to the town of Mandeville. She and her husband laid low there just long enough to arrange for power of attorney to be transferred to her two son-in-laws. Then on June 1834, they departed from New York for France. They wind up in Paris with their youngest son, where eventually they're joined by Delphine's three unmarried adult children. Meanwhile, back in New Orleans, little is left of the Lorraine mansion besides the walls, which are fire damaged now anyway. Delphine's son-in-law sold it for less than half of its original purchase price. He also sold 11 of the 30 slaves owned by Delphine at the time. This includes the coach driver who helped rescue her. She couldn't even be bothered to free the man who rescued her. Anyway, the fact that 19 slaves are unaccounted for in a time when slaves were considered goods and sales were tracked meticulously is suspect. It's likely they were either earlier victims of Dauphine's where their deaths were unreported because she murdered them, or they were unfit to sell due to their physical condition because Delphine abused them. So what did happen to Delphine? I am sad and sorry to say that she never faced any legal retribution for her crimes. She remained in Paris, though a few years in, her husband, Dr. Lalori, apparently up and left her. He went to Havana one day and never saw her or their son again. It unfortunately sounds like she enjoyed kind of a comfortable life in Paris with her children, often visiting the health spas in the Pyrenees Mountains. Once her other son-in-law took over managing her affairs back in New Orleans, though, he stopped sending her monthly payments, choosing to keep the money for herself instead. And this did upset her. She was constantly writing him letters asking for money to pay her creditors and would often speak of going back to New Orleans herself to set everything straight again, though she never did, of course. It's from letters written by her children to one another that we get the sense that despite her comfortable surroundings, she kind of became an obsessive, unhappy woman. The sentiment is that she never really understood why she was run out of New Orleans, or at least that she thought it wouldn't be a concern for her to go back. And her children were constantly having to, like, explain to her why she can't go back there, and all the while she's complaining of money, and on and on. There seems to be a lot of rumors surrounding Delphine's death as well. One is that she was gored to death by a boar on a hunting expedition in 1842, but it looks like there's actually a pretty established paper trail concerning her death. She died after a long illness at her home in Paris on December 7, 1849. Her funeral was held the next day, and she was buried at the cemetery of Montmartre. In 1851, caretakers' records show that her remains were exhumed of her transportation to New Orleans. She was reinterred in New Orleans, St. Louis Cemetery No. 1, the plot having been purchased by her son, Pauline Blanc. I think the reason for the perceived mystery is that this was kind of forgotten or not well documented until 1924, when a plot was discovered with the inscription, Madame Laurie, born Marie Delphine McCarthy, died in Paris December 7, 1842, at the age of 6-60-something. Obviously, the years don't quite match up, but it's widely agreed upon that this is her final resting place. The mansion itself was rebuilt in 1838 in the same style it was originally constructed. In that regard, the house that stands there today is not the original LaLaurie mansion. That was completely destroyed by the fire and the ensuing riot. Since being rebuilt, it's been utilized as a public high school, music school, apartment building, a refuge for troubled youths, a bar, a furniture store, and a luxury apartment building. From the early 20th century clear through the 1970s, the property was expanded on to include a third floor, 
rear building that was initially a single floor and then a second and third floor added to that. In 2007, actor Nicolas Cage purchased the property, but it was foreclosed on in 2009. It was last sold in 2010 and remains a private residence. Today, there are no tours or access for the public to the mansion. You can, of course, walk by the outside of it. Now, I know that was kind of a brutal story, but I did say I would circle back to some of the lore regarding what witnesses found in the LaLaurie household. By all accounts, Delphine's treatment of her slaves was horrific. Unfortunately, most white property owners then kept slaves, and a lot were as bad or worse than her. Delphine's story, though, seems to have had a number even more horrifying and gruesome claims penned into it, though. These claims, however, didn't actually appear anywhere until about 1945. This is an excerpt from the book Ghost Stories of Old New Orleans by Jean de Levine. Content warning for torture here. Fast forward if you have to. Male slaves, stark naked, chained to the wall, their eyes gouged out, their fingernails pulled off by the roots. Others had their joints skinned and festering, great holes in their buttocks where the flesh had been sliced away, their ears hanging by shreds, their lips sewn together, intestines were pulled out and knotted around naked waists. There were holes in skulls where a rough stick had been inserted to stir the brains. There were no sources cited for these claims. Another book of this time, published in 1998, titled Journey into Darkness, Ghosts and Vampires of New Orleans, by Kalia Catherine Smith, who also operated New Orleans ghost tour business, included the following claims that were also not cited. Again, fast forward if you're squeamish. Amongst the victims taken from the LaLaurie house was one who, quote, obviously had her arms amputated and her skin peeled off in a circular pattern, making her look like a human caterpillar and another who had her limbs broken and reset at odd angles so she resembled a human crab. Yikes. While that is a wild story, it does not appear to be historically accurate as far as Delphine LaLaurie is concerned. It does somewhat resemble the story of another female murderer, though, and that is Elizabeth Bathory. Elizabeth Bathory was a 17th century Hungarian countess who also enjoyed torturing her servants. And while their stories are separated by more than 200 years, they do share some parallels. It's not hard to see how the stories of Elizabeth Bathory and Delphine LaLaurie could have gotten conflated and exaggerated over time. If you head on over to Instagram at a goodnight for a murder, you can see some photos of Delphine, the infantess mansion, and more. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at a goodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Goodnight for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. The bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler to your Patreons for this episode is actually the story of Elizabeth Bathory. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit a goodnightforamurder.com. Also, follow me on Instagram or TikTok at a goodnightforamurder. Friends, that is a wrap on season one of a Good Night for a Murder podcast. Thank you so much to every single one of you who has listened, followed, and shared. If you enjoyed season one and have not already, it would mean a lot if you could leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen. Remember, there will be some stories and other content released through March and April. I'll be back in a few months with a bunch of new stories for you. Until then, thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. Bye.